I felt, I felt tiny. I felt defeated. I literally had sheets over my head. I tried to sleep, and then a few hours later, I woke up, and I woke up with this sense of resolve. It was this recognition that this had nothing to do with me. Like, go after me all you want. This has nothing to do with me, but this has everything to do with my kids. Welcome to The Women, a production of iHeartRadio and myself, your host, Rose Reed. Every episode, I'll sit down with one person who has journeyed to do the extraordinary. And on this episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha. I love being a pediatrician. I think I have the absolute best job in the world. I wake up in the morning and I pinch myself because I'm not going to work. I'm doing something that I love to do. And I'm a clinician, I'm an educator, I'm a researcher, but I'm also an advocate. Dr. Monahanna Atisha is a pediatrician based in Flint, Michigan. Flint is a two-hour drive north of Detroit, and for a century, or until the 1980s, it was a factory hub for the car parts made in America. General Motors still has a plant there, but its population has decreased by half, and today there are about 100,000 people living in Flint. About 60% of Flint's children live under the poverty line. In 2014, Flint switched its water source from the Great Lake Huron to instead pump from the Flint River. That river water didn't get treated properly. And a year later, the Flint water crisis made national headlines conjuring images of residents holding water jugs filled with yellowed and browning water. In the summer of 2015, Mona had been tipped off to look deeper at the water issue, and she began doing her own research at her Michigan State Hospital. She held a press conference to share her findings, which revealed that the water Flint kids had been drinking was contaminated with dangerous levels of lead. The state of Michigan attempted to discredit Mona, but she persisted in her role as a whistleblower. And the city did switch its water back to the Great Lakes. But the pipes are still corroded and residents still cannot drink the water. It's been a long road to rebuild the infrastructure in the city, and when I visited Mona and Flynn, I wanted to get an understanding of what inspired her to pursue medicine, what fuels her love of science, and what helps her to be brave. How would you describe yourself and why what you do is important? My role as a pediatrician is so much about what will happen to that child in 5, 10, 15 years, not so much about taking care of them today and helping, you know, with their fever or broken bones or their well baby visits. But it's more of how will we preserve the promise of that child in front of us? And the neat thing about pediatrics is so much of our work is really embedded in advocacy. That's one of the reasons I was drawn to the profession of pediatrics being also that advocate. So that means not only do we get to impact the life of that kid in front of us, but we also get to take a step back and look at what's happening at the population of children. So that's why I think being a pediatrician is awesome. It's not work that we do in isolation. Also, being a pediatrician means we have to partner with teachers and social workers and dietitians and mental health professionals Mm -hmm. and all these other folks who also uh, work uh, with kids. To me, it sounds like you're, um, you're on the watch what are those things that are you looking for when you when a kid does come into your office? Yeah, so in in broad strokes we we call all the non-medical things that can impact a child's health and development the social determinants of health. So it's things like 
poverty and unsafe neighborhoods and lack of nutrition, uh, you know, poor schools, all these other things that are well-known contributors to, to outcomes in children. So much so that a child who lived in a Flint zip code actually lived 15 years less than a child in an adjacent zip code just because of their environment and because of their situation. And when you were growing up, your family moved to Royal Oak in Michigan. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I, I loved reading about was, you know, coming together with your friends and working successfully against an incinerator that was really close to the school. Yeah, so high school was this really formative time uh, for me. But I think the most formative period in high school was my time with our environmental club. And it was a group called C, Students for Environmental Awareness. The group was led by a New York transplant, this amazing, strong, independent woman who served as a really early role model for me and how women should be and how they can act and how they can create change. And so we did what like high school environmental clubs do. So we um, recycled and we would post signs about, Can I, let's take care of the earth. And then we found out that in an adjacent community to ours in Madison Heights, there was an incinerator, and it had been closed for a few years, and it was about to be reopened. And in that neighboring community, there were higher rates of asthma. The adults had breathing problems, something called COPD. And when people used to wake up when an incinerator was active, there was a layer of black soot, like, over their cars and on their driveways. And this incinerator was about to be reopened. So my amazing high school environmental club leader, Roberta, and we used to um, call her Bobby, she to you know, she got us involved in this real fight. So we went, there was a local organization called Clean Air Please, led by a single mom nurse. And we would go door knocking, we'd go to community meetings, we would hold protests. I was like 13, 14 years old. I couldn't drive. My parents would drop me off to the community center saying, you know, good luck, don't get arrested, we'll pick you up in like two hours. <laughs> and, you know, I, it was just an incredible experience to be part of the community and to be involved in something that was really important. It was a real issue affecting the lives of real people. We eventually helped elect a state representative who was part of our local group, um, our community organization. And the very first thing that he did when he went to the state legislature was pass a law that you couldn't open an incinerator so close to an elementary school because this incinerator was literally in the shadows of an elementary school. So at this really early age, I think I was like 14 years old, I realized the power of being civically engaged. I realized that young people have a voice. I realized the connection between environment and health. Um, but I also realized what good government can do, what policymakers who care, how they can create a difference and implement policies that ultimately improve the health and lives of people. Um, yeah, and that was in high school. Mm -hmm. I was a teenager. Um, <laughs> and that has stuck with me. All of us have in some way or another devoted our lives to service I know. because of those early experiences. It's a really fascinating thing to me about, you know, growing up and seeing what it was like for your parents to make such a change, such a shift. And, you mm -hmm. know, you, you're so dedicated mm -hmm. to your community and to your family and to go to a new place. Your parents left Iraq before Saddam Hussein took power, before mm -hmm. the Iran on Iraq war. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you can tell me how your what it was like to watch your mom start over and rebuild. I don't think she could use her chemistry degree. Yeah, she, yeah. So, you know, she was a reluctant immigrant. Like none of us were 
expected to come to this country. Uh, we only came to this country because of the political situation in Iraq. So Saddam Hussein was rising in power. Uh, my parents knew that they could not uh, go back to Iraq and, and raise two small children. Uh, they were seeing friends and classmates and peers who were, um, you know, missing or being silenced or, you know, suffering the consequences of this oppressive regime. And very much seeing firsthand the rise of, of fascism and dictatorship. So we came to the States um, when I was about four. And and the plan was never to stay long. Um, you know, the plan was, oh, it's going to get better there soon. And we'd be able to go back home. Because back home was where everything was, where all of our extended family was. Um, you know, friends and, you know, language, everything was back home. My first language was Arabic. It, it wasn't English. Um, and finally, my mom, I was was probably like six or seven years old, realized that this is where we're going to stay. Um, and she, you know, really shifted from, you know, planning to go back home to how can we build our lives here? Her chemistry degree was essentially worthless in the States. So she went back to school, became a teacher, and she became an English as a second language teacher, an ESL teacher. So she was really helping a lot of these recent immigrants, not only from the Middle East, but from all over the world, acclimate to this country and kind of do their best here. After Flint switched its water source from the Great Lake Huron to the Flint River, residents began to complain to their city and state officials that the water was yellow and brown, and some families noticed rashes or hair loss after a bath. However, the state reassured the public that the water was fine. At the clinic, Mona would get the same questions from parents asking her if the water was okay, and she shared the same information she was receiving from state officials. The water was fine. In August of 2015, Mona invited some friends over to her house for a barbecue, and one of her best friends, Elin, Elin Warren Batanzo, from the high school science club Fighting the Incinerator, had recently left her job as a water engineer at the Environmental Protection Agency. And just before the barbecue, Elin had read a leaked memo from a colleague still at the EPA. She learned two things. There was indeed a problem with the Flint River. And anyone who had tried to speak up had been silenced. Elin eventually corners me into my kitchen, and we both have a glass of wine in our hand because all good stories start with a glass of wine. Just kidding. Have salad, too. <laughs> and Elin's uh, asking me, she's like, you know, what have you heard about the water in Flint? And then she said, well, you know, it's not being treated properly. It's missing an ingredient called corrosion control. And her laser eyes, like, focus on me. And when she says corrosion control, it's like the earth is about to end. And I say, I've never heard of that. And she's like, well, without corrosion control, there's going to be lead in the water. Why is it so scary as a pediatrician to hear that a child could be exposed to lead at an early age? Uh, so lead is probably the oldest and most well-studied neurotoxins. We've known what lead has done literally for centuries. Uh, it impacts the core of what it means to be you, impacting cognition, dropping IQ levels, behavior, development, attention problems, focusing issues. It's even been, been linked to things like criminality. One of my favorite authors, a lead historian, wrote 
that lead is a multi-headed hydra. Wherever you turn, um, there's an, another bad thing that lead does. And because of the incredible science, especially over the last few decades, we have gotten to the point of recognizing that there is no safe level of lead because of what it does, especially to developing brains in terms of cognition and behavior. And that our focus in medicine and public health has to be this concept of primary prevention, where we work to prevent any exposure to lead um, rather than really focusing on taking care of kids after they're exposed because really it's too late. And what do you say to parents who say, well, if I'm okay, then it's certainly okay for my kids? Yeah. So we, you know, we hear that a lot. We even hear that from doctors who used to practice, you know, decades ago who'd say, oh, you know, lead levels were so much worse back in the day and we turned out okay. And my response is like, imagine what you could have been, you know, the, the Dr. Landrigan, who's credited with kind of really getting lead out of paint, he's also credited with raising the IQ of the nation uh, because Got- Wait, I think you need to say that so I really wrap my <laughs> mind around it. So when when lead was finally removed from paint, uh, we literally were able to raise the IQ of the nation. But the biggest kind of exposure of lead was lead in gasoline, which contaminated the entire earth. All of these industries knew that lead was toxic even a century ago, um, yet they had the patents on them and, and they knew they could reap dollars. When you heard this at the barbecue, your first instinct was to get proof. Mm -hmm. Because I knew for about a year and a half, you know, lots of folks were raising concerns. Um, The moms, Leanne Walter, the activists, pastors, journalists. Like, by the time I started to dig in, I realized, like, oh, my gosh, a lot of people were trying to raise alarm bells here. And all those folks were being silenced and dismissed. And I knew if I was going to try to make a dent in the story— that I would have to supply evidence of that proof of arm. I never should have have to. This crisis never should have started, but it, it should have ended when the first mom held a jug of brown water. But it definitely should have ended when we knew there was lead in water. But I had to prove harm. I had to prove that something was dangerous, that it was in our children. But if we truly respected the science of lead's neurotoxicity, if we practiced what we were supposed to practice, called primary prevention, knowing that there was lead in the water should have ended this crisis, but it didn't. And over the course of a month, you, almost in a stealth way, using your resources, were able to look at the blood sampling. We compared blood levels of kids before the water switch to after the water switch in Flint. And we also were able to compare them to the kids in the county, but outside of Flint city limits. And you found that the children indeed had been exposed to lead and to a dangerous level. Yeah. So what we found that uh, contrary to everything that was happening at the national level, the state level, and even the city level where lead levels in kids have been coming down over the last couple of decades, we also saw the greatest increase in children's blood lead levels. And with your proof, you held a press conference. You were able to get your research together and mm-hmm. show the the blood levels in children in Flint were indeed being impacted by the water switch. And you were also able to show that those levels were dangerous. You held this press conference. Sure. What happened next? I felt great. I'm like, yes, awesome. I'm protecting kids. I'm sharing science and facts and evidence. You know, things are going to get better. People are going to know and they can take precautions. Um, so I felt great for like a minute. Um, and then the state and really every arm of the state 
began to attack me, began to attack the science and my credibility. Um, they said that my numbers were wrong, that my numbers weren't consistent with their numbers, that I was splicing, dicing numbers, that I was an unfortunate researcher, that I was causing near hysteria. So I, I, um, I felt, I felt tiny. I felt defeated. I felt absolutely small. Did you doubt your math? Absolutely. I began to second guess myself. I literally had sheets over my head. And I'm like, oh my gosh, maybe I screwed up. Maybe I should have kept my eyes closed and gone about my busy business as a pediatrician, educator, mom, wife. Maybe maybe this was way out of my league. Um, so uh, I felt sick. I, I, um, I knew my, my heart rate was close to 200. I, I, I felt nauseous. There was this kind of knot in my stomach that wouldn't go away. And who did you turn to to talk that through? Um, I, I tried to sleep, and then a few hours later I woke up, and I woke up with this sense of resolve. It was this recognition that this had nothing to do with me. Like, go after me all you want. This has nothing to do with me. But this has everything to do with my kids. And my kids that as a pediatrician, like I have literally taken an oath to protect. And it was almost as if like my research, like my Excel spreadsheets, those numbers, it was almost as if those numbers were jumping out of my spreadsheets. And every single number was no longer a number. It was a kid. And I could see their faces. And they were kind of lifting me up and giving me the courage to keep going. So it finally took this recognition that it's not about me. It's about the kids. And it is the kids that kind of gave me the courage to fight back. When Flint switched its water from the Great Lakes to the Flint River and decided to treat the Flint River rather than buy good water from uh, Lake Huron, General Motors didn't use the water from Flint. Can you tell me why? Yeah, so General Motors was on Flint water initially. So General Motors is um, was born in Flint, um, still has plants in Flint, and they, they uh, were on the Flint River water initially. And then within a few months, they noticed that their engine parts were corroding because of our drinking water. Um, they were allowed to create another bypass route to go back to Great Lakes Water. And the people of Flint were literally told to relax, that everything was okay. And and this was this all happened a full year prior to my work. And what's really incredible is how water comes up so often when you're just doing when you just do one shift, you're talking to a mom who has a newborn is using mm -hmm. water for the formula. Mm -hmm. You're talking to a kid who is preventing themselves from getting diabetes mm -hmm. and stopping drinking soda and switching to water. You're talking to um, parents who are pulling you aside and saying, "Is the water okay?" Yeah. We all know we drink water, we shower, we mm. wash our dishes. But when you think about how water goes through uh, clinicians every day, mm -hmm. it really makes you see it differently. Yeah. So at this point, it became almost a numbers war. So I was fighting back with more science, more more evidence, more numbers, uh, really calling them out and why they were wrong and I was right. Um, but it also became now a growing team, a growing army of voices. Uh, you know, other, you know, the media started to pay attention. And this is where, after that press conference, is the point that Flint no longer became a local story and started to become a national story. And we were so grateful for the media who were finally kind of paying attention to the story and also raising alarm bells. And why was the reaction to question and fight you rather than collaborate with you? 
That is a great question. So, and it was not just me, but why were they fighting every single person who had raised concerns? Um, several of the investigations, including the governor's first task force report, actually alluded to that. Like, you know, if you had just spent that same amount of effort looking into the problem rather than attacking people and dismissing their problems, you know, this wouldn't have been a problem. Um, so, you know, why? why I, I wonder, like, why was all this effort set out to deny, deny, deny? Like, knee-jerk response was deny rather than to look into what was going on. How did you use our uh, system to rectify the situation? Um, eventually, the, the head doctor at the state called me, um, and we began to have a great kind of academic doctor-to-doctor back-and-forth discussion. Um, and I shared kind of how I did my science and what we came up with. And I shared some articles about lead and water. That, um, you know, so many folks in public health don't know very much about lead and water. Uh, we're just so trained to look at lead and paint and soil and dust, and we don't know as much about lead and water. And then she got the state to kind of relook at what the numbers at the state because the state had all these numbers. We do surveillance for lead. And that, that was the turning point because then they realized after looking at the information that there also was a problem. Talk me through that a little bit more. So they had the numbers in front of them, but they couldn't see it or they weren't looking for it or they were in denial. How were they able to to say, oh, you're right? What I had heard is that they went back and looked at the surveillance data and, and did kind of the, the research the same way that I had done mine and also showed this increase with this larger data set. My data set was using hospital records because I couldn't get that surveillance data. Um, and, and they saw similar findings when they looked at the larger population level data. And the findings were um, that corroborated your findings in Flint, mm-hmm. or did they reveal more children in Michigan or had higher levels? Of yeah, that? it also it, they were looking at Flint specifically, and it revealed that yes, there was this increase in the percentage of kids with elevated blood lead levels in Flint. Um, however, uh, after a while, we and why there are some criminal charges against folks at the health department, we came to realize that they had actually looked at these levels. Um, the previous summer, they'd actually seen a spike, and that was really kind of buried and covered up. And why didn't they want to ring the alarm bells? I don't know. Why, why weren't there more whistleblowers at the state? Um, so that's that's being investigated right now, and there's actually criminal charges against those folks. Eventually, the, the state conceded. Uh, they said that, yes, there's a problem. They um, agreed to switch back to Great Lakes Water. That happened in mid-October, so less than a month after my press conference. Within a couple of weeks, what we were once told was, oh, we can't, you know, that's impossible to go back to Great Lakes Water. We sold part of the pipeline. Um, that that became possible with also the support of philanthropy. The Mott Foundation put in like $4 million to make that happen. And then a new mayor came in in November, and in December, she declared a state of emergency for the city, which went up to the county level, which went up to the state level, and then that was finally approved by Obama in January of 2016. And have we seen the lead levels go down in Flint? Yeah, absolutely. So the lead levels in our water came down significantly, as well as the percentage of kids with elevated lead levels has come down because people know that there's a problem. The pipes were so damaged because for 18 months they were on this corrosive water 
The folks at the EPA said it was like drinking through a lead-painted straw. Like you never knew when a piece of lead scale was going to come off those pipes and into the drinking water. Those pipes are being replaced now, which is awesome. And we're almost done with that pipe replacement. That will be done this year. And then Flint will be actually the only third city in the country that has replaced their lead pipes. And because of, you know, the Flint issue and really putting a spotlight on on lead and water, many more cities are now uh, investing in in replacing that infrastructure. Uh, But we need more federal investment to make sure that this doesn't happen anywhere else. Between the day you being alerted by your childhood friend that there might be lead in the water. Close high school girlfriend. Mm -hmm. To the day that you had a press conference was within six weeks. Unbelievable. Yeah, less. And um, I wonder, did you and and your husband ever have a conversation? Should we pursue this? Um, Is is this is getting tangled into the city and the state and a and is there lead in the water question an Aaron Brockovich story? Do we want to entangle ourselves? Did you ever ask each other or did you just No, it was a choiceless choice. Um there there was no other option than going forward. Um when you know what lead does, when you know all the risk factors that our kids in Flint already have, th- this I could not close my eyes to what was happening. And then I didn't have the, you know, the benefit of, of hindsight. I had no idea that this was going to be a big story um, or that we were kind of going to unravel a scandal. Uh, so it was it was an obligation. It was this very professional and moral, ethical obligation to figure out what was going on with, with my kids. Are we convinced that they knew $80 a day was worth poisoning kids temporarily? Uh, we don't know. And those investigations are ongoing. You know, I, many investigations have happened um, that all by and large point most of the blame to the Office of Drinking Water at the state level, um, but also very clearly recognizing that this was a form of environmental injustice, that the race and the demographics of the population, um, you know, were part of the part of what happened. I don't understand how any of this relates to smart business or budget cuts or saving money. This sounds very expensive. Right. And, and nor does it have anything to do with science. It is a egregious examples of, of what happens when we deny science. There was fourth graders in Flint during this time that conducted the experiments on Flint water and Detroit water. And fourth graders found that the Flint water was about 20 times more corrosive. And these were experiments that the state were said were too expensive and too complicated to do. Yet fourth graders did them. Um, so not only was this a denial of science, but a denial of really common sense and basic math. I was wondering if if you feel comfortable telling listeners if you think that water in America is safe to drink. Yeah, I never use the word safe anymore. Um, After what happened in Flint, after realizing that our national regulations have not caught up with science that do not fully protect public health. Um, water's not safe anywhere, especially when it comes to lead and water. We were never supposed to have lead-free water. Um, so if anybody is worried about lead specifically in their water, I would recommend using a lead-clearing filter, especially for pregnant moms and kids under the age of five. Should we drink uh, more bottled water? Um, no. You know, unfortunately, what happened is that we've made the bottled water industry rich because of Flint. For the first time, 
in our nation after the Flint water crisis, bottled water outsold soda, which is good. People shouldn't be drinking soda anyways. Um, but the intent of this crisis is also not to have us depend on bottled water. We should be at a point where when we turn on our tap in Flint, New York, Detroit, you name it, that we can trust the science that the water is safe to drink. But we're not there yet in terms of our regulations. When we think of PB, Mm-hmm. From the period, our beloved mm-hmm. periodic table. <laughs> PB. And we think about how our ancestors, I mean, so much of mm-hmm. the Romans used mm-hmm. lead in their plumbing, and plumbing comes from PB. Which I had no idea about. And essentially, our infrastructure has been created on something that is no longer safe. And yeah. we haven't been able to reckon with it in either a scientifically honest way mm-hmm. or have our regulations catch up with science. Perfect. Mm-hmm. You've taken on lead. <laughs> is there is there something else uh, that we should really be, is our whole world up for picking apart or is is this kind of a contained issue? The one thing that, Uh, is kind of critical to the story is that it's not an isolated story. This is not just a story about lead or about water, but really fundamentally um, how we need to do a better job respecting science and protecting our public's health. In my book, there's the discussion of the Kehoe paradigm. So in the 1920s, a century ago, even a century ago, we knew that lead was bad. And my favorite, one of my favorite heroes at that time was a woman named Alice Hamilton, a scientist, an activist, social justice pioneer, first woman at Harvard in a century ago, 1919. And she uh, she went after General Motors with all her might to so that they would not put lead in gasoline. Uh, and their kind of lead scientist was this apologist named Robert Kehoe. And he made a deal with the Surgeon General. He said, if you can prove that lead is harmful, we'll take it out. And that set forth this principle called the Kehoe paradigm, that something is safe until proven dangerous. And we're not talking about like, you know, the legal system where you're innocent until proven guilty. We're talking about toxins. This set forth this precedent that has continued to this day in how we uh, we think about public health and how we think about chemicals and toxins and things that shouldn't be in our environment nor in our bodies, that something is safe until proven dangerous. And that's opposite of what we should be doing and how we should be thinking. We should be governed by something called the precautionary principle, which is this recognition that something is should be dangerous until proven safe. But because of that paradigm that was set about a century ago, we have allowed for the unchecked use of thousands and thousands of chemicals. And when it comes to lead, we have silently poisoned generations of children because of that principle that it was industry-driven, that was profit-driven of assuming things are safe uh, until proven dangerous. At that time, General Motors would actually said that lead is a gift from God or that you could pee it out or excrete it and that has benefits to you. And we actually see some of these kinds of things being said to this day. But what I hope that the story also shares is the power of good government um, and the importance of democracy. So Flint literally lost democracy. We had no accountable local elected officials. Yet those who were elected, for example, our state senator, our state representative, our U.S. congressional delegation, when they found out what was going on, they never stopped fighting for Flint. And that was an absolute 
kind of reaffirmation of what good policymakers and, you know, and public servants should be doing. Listeners listening to this, um, you know, hearing a, a pediatrician and a mom, a busy mom, and, you know, you're pulled aside at a family gathering and kind of blindsided by the potential for being a whistleblower, for highlighting lead in the water. I can just see, I can put myself in your shoes and think, I haven't gotten eight hours of sleep mm-hmm. in like eight months. <laughs> and like, all I really want to do mm-hmm. is like, watch an hour of TV, mm-hmm. go to sleep, get my groceries tomorrow and have another piecemeal Band-Aid day. How do we combat that? Because it just feels like this is not my responsibility. Yeah. And for a while, like, I'm like, where are the people that this is their job? Like, there's people who are tax dollars pay to make sure that our water is clean when it comes out our tap. There's people who their job is to like track and trend blood lead levels. Some folks who were trying to silence me kept saying like, this is somebody else's job. Somebody else will do this. This is not your job. Um, And I quickly realized that there was nobody else coming in, that that this is my job. Um, And not as much of the job of a doctor. Like I talked about how I took an oath to protect kids. Um, What I hope that this story shares is that We've all taken an oath. Um, It is our human and our civic responsibility. If we are a member of a a family, a a neighborhood, a community, a society, a country, it is all our responsibility to keep our eyes open to injustices that are happening everywhere all the time, and that it is all of our responsibility to act um, when we see injustice, no matter how hard, no matter how scary, no matter how impossible it may seem. We cannot afford to close our eyes and to stay silent when we see these kinds of things. When women are picking up this burden as caretakers and as remembering the birthdays and remembering the promotions and standing up in a meeting and saying, you know, have we considered Emily Mm -hmm. for this? How do we keep up that good fight when this burden is is falling so much to women? I think it may be good that it's falling to us because we do a really good job at it. We're awesome. We need to be at the table and we need to articulate these necessities. There's a part in this crisis when the governor and his team came to my clinic and they they were sharing kind of the new budget and all the recovery um, items for Flint. And, they and this is to, the new governor? This is the old governor. And they wanted to get my buy-in. And, you know, in medicine, especially in pediatrics, I have built a group of colleagues that are, by and large, a lot of women, a lot of a lot of brown women. And here was the governor that and walked into my clinic, and it might have been like eight white men all in suits. And it was like a shock for me. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, you know, I'm used to so many like dark women in white coats and here's all these white men in dark suits. And it was like a juxtaposition of like, is this, is this real? And like, could this be why we're in so many of these problems? Like, could this be one of the reasons like this is happening? Um, so it really reaffirmed for me that we need the voices of women. We need the voices of diverse women at the table, being loud, being persistent, being disobedient to raise all these important issues and to try to collectively make them better.
for Truth or Truth. Uh, this is a lightning round on the women where we we go a little light after going a little deep. <laughs> Dare. <laughs> Do you have a team that you support, a sports team? So I... I went to college, and on football Saturdays, everybody would be at the football game, and I would be, like, planning a protest or something. So I never really um, was a big fan of sports until the Flint water crisis. And the biggest response um, to Flint, so many people cared about Flint and came to Flint, you know, but has come from athletes, um, specifically basketball players. The NBPA, the National Basketball Players Association, the Union of Basketball Players, as well as the Detroit Pistons, have continued to give and give and give. Um, they're funding our newborn literacy program. So we give every baby at the hospital who's born a bundle of books and developmental toys, and that's funded by our basketball players. So I I love the basketball players, the Detroit Pistons, which is our um, NBA team. The owner is a Flint kid. Uh, and he's been very, very supportive. Is there a book that you know in that pile of books that you love? Sure. One of my favorite books is also by a physician author called Cutting for Stone by Abraham Vergesi, which is just beautiful, beautiful fiction. What was your favorite element on the periodic table? Because <laughs> I know <favorite>. mine. <laughs> I don't, nobody's ever asked that question. I love it. Um, probably like hydrogen, something simple and like, you know, important to everything. Okay, great. Because I was, I was definitely, I was guessing towards the uh, airs, the, yeah. like, the, the air ones and not the metals. Something with a positive charge. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, Rose. You're awesome. <laughs> My conversation with Dr. Mona is just a slice of the saga that she and other Flint residents have gone through. You can read more about Dr. Mona and her family's journey and see her recommendations for how to treat water in her book, What the Eyes Don't See. Over 30,000 of Flint's kids have been exposed to lead, and the New York Times is currently reporting on how the struggle has moved from inside families' homes to an overwhelmed school system. The 2016 class action lawsuit received a partial settlement designating $3 million to create a neurodevelopmental center for kids in Flint. There were 15 state and local officials who received criminal charges. Seven took plea deals. The others waited for trial. However, earlier this summer, Michigan's new attorney general dropped the eight remaining cases in order to reopen the investigation with more critical evidence. The Women is a production of iHeartRadio and myself, your host, Rose Reed. Holly Fry is our executive producer. This episode was mixed by Adrian Lilly. Special thanks to Nora Kipnis, Rebirth Studio, and especially Gail Reed. You can find a goofy picture of me and Mona on Instagram or Twitter at The Women Pod. On our next episode, the daughter of the civil rights movement, a local hero of my hometown, Atlanta, Georgia, and the executive director of the ACLU of Georgia, Andrea Young. I describe what I do as defending the Constitution and working to continue to try to make real Dr. King's dream of the beloved community. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.